0: And so, uh, we've been going through the book of Daniel here, since, really since the fall started, um, and uh, we've been talking about what it looks like to, to live in exile, to be um, uh, like, the, like the people in the, book of, in the book of Daniel who are living in exile, they're in a place that's, that's not their home, um, but they're learning how to live well in that space. We've been talking about what it looks like for us to do that as Christians as well. Um, And so we have been talking about all sorts of of different um, ideas and kind of things associated with living in exile as they present themselves in the book of Daniel. And last week we talked about uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his pride. And we're going to find this week, we actually jump way, way, way ahead in the story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is actually uh, gone. Uh, He's dead. And there's a new king in charge. And so Daniel is going to be relating to this new king. Daniel might be like 85 is what I read from one commentator, just kind of a guess at like Daniel's age here. He's a very old man, but he's still in the service of the king and in the service of Babylon. And so we're gonna pick up the story um, after a big time jump talking about a new king. And today we, we, what I want to talk about is, is how we relate to God's word in exile. All right, How do we um, relate ourselves, posture ourselves well to receive God's word and what role does that play for us as we are in exile. So what I'm going to do as we, we start out is we're going to just read the whole passage and then we'll reflect on it afterwards. All right, So let's, let's jump in. Uh, let's start Daniel chapter 5 in verse 1. King Belshazzar. All right, let's stop there, okay? Because King Belshazzar is a new character um, in the story. He's the king of Babylon in the story, and he's having a great big banquet. Um, Just to clear up any confusion, um, Daniel gets a Babylonian name at the beginning of the story, which is Belteshazzar. This is a different name, slightly different, and it's not referring to Daniel, okay? So just want to make sure that you, that you are not confused, because it is very confusing that they would give those two people the, such close names. But that's what we're, what we're dealing with, all right? So, so now you know when Bel, you see Belshazzar, that's the king, and when you hear Daniel, that's just Daniel, all right? So King Belshazzar gave a great banquet... Uh, for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, okay, keep that in mind. We're going to talk about that later. Nebuchadnezzar, his father, all right, um, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the kings, the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. This is a callback to chapter 1 where they're talking about the exile and what happens. And actually it makes this a passing reference. This is one of the first verses of the whole book. That they took these holy goblets and sacred um, articles from the temple and brought them with them in exile, and with, with the people of Israel into their exile. And so now King Belshazzar has decided for his uh, big party that he's having, like what would be better than to use uh, the, the articles taken from the temple of these exiles, Israel, to, to drink and party with. All right, So he's pulling those out of storage, and that's what they're using to eat and drink their food. So, um, And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So these goblets and, and, and articles, whatever is included in them, instead of being used to dedicate towards the worship of God, of Yahweh, of the Israel, Israelites God, they're now being dedicated towards the worship of, of the gods of Babylon, which are gods of gold and silver and iron and wood and stone, not living gods. All right? That's kind of the critique or the, the, little, the little backhanded um, uh, expression here that that the writer is, is giving us. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking, which is a a strange phrase, I think. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to, the, to the, these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Remember, and and Daniel has come into contact with these astrologers and diviners and and, and soothsayers that that, that are part of the king's court. They're kind of the king's advisors. They fill a similar type of role to uh, what cabinet members of a president's administration would have. They come in, and they're supposed to be able to tell the king what the gods are saying so that the king can make official policy based off of it, and they're baffled by what has happened. They don't don't have any answer for the king, and it makes him uh, even more afraid. So the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar so there's, there's Daniel's name, that's not the king, um, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also uh, the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So we learn here, in this large time jump that's taken place, that uh, Daniel has apparently... Been shuffled off somewhere. He's not a part, he's not filling the role that he was before. He still is in the kingdom, he still has some role within uh, the king's court, but King Belshazzar doesn't even know who he is. All right, so Daniel is called back in after this long absence uh, to fulfill the role that he's filled at other points in the book, but for King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought from Judah? It's kind of a little bit condescending, we can detect there. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now I'm not sure about this. We can't be sure what uh, what Belshazzar is thinking, but you you get a sense that him offering to Daniel. He, listen. Give me the interpretation and I will give you so much great stuff. You will be elevated to this amazing role and you know you will be decked out in all of the royal colors and people will know how great you are. You get a sense in which there's a bit of a quid pro quo here, right? He's like, hey, why don't you give me a good interpretation for this, right? Like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure it's worth your while and there's some pressure that's put on Daniel here to maybe give a good response. The kind of thing that would... Um, that would, uh, would please the king and, and keep him in the king's good graces, all right? Again, we don't know this for sure, but I think it, it, you, can, you, can, you can sense this, right? And this is what a lot of these people who, who hang out in this role were doing. They were basically there to kind of puff up the king and tell him the king what he uh, wanted to hear. And in, in doing so, they lived pretty cushy lives. So this was a good, a good living for them to have. And, and, Neb- and Belshazzar sorry, is offering this to Daniel. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else, okay? Keep your stuff, bro. I don't want any of it, all right? I see what this is, all right? Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. All right? Now, Daniel's not necessarily opposed to the, 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 the position that Belshazzar is offering to him because he had that under, under Nebuchadnezzar. He had all of this stuff here, but he's going to contrast Belshazzar, Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar and say... Nebuchadnezzar was someone who, who responded well to God, and you are not that type of person. So I don't want anything to do with you. And we're going to find out, Daniel, Daniel knows what's about to happen, and he knows that this is a really empty offer that the king is not going to actually be able to make here by the end of the night. But you, Belshazzar, your son, or his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. They praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote The inscription. So you are not like your father, he says. And because of this, this word from God has come to you. And it's important that we we think of it as a word from God, right? Because that's going to form our understanding of the passage and our relation to the word of God as well. This is a word of God that has come to Belshazzar for some reason. And, and, that, and it has come because uh, Belshazzar has rejected all that his, his father, King Nebuchadnezzar, had done in his response to God in a, in a positive way. And, and Julie talked about that last week. Specifically, we walked through an episode where, where Nebuchadnezzar is humbled um, and responds well by, by giving praise and glory and honor to Yahweh. But, but Belshazzar is not his father. And he, so, because of that, he is being condemned by God. That's what Daniel's saying. This is the inscription that was written, "Mine, mine, Tekel, Parson. Here's what the words mean. "Mine," God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So, if we dig into this, and we don't need to get too deep into it, um, it, it basically it's kind of a pun or play on words. And... and So Mine, Mine, Takeo, Parson are actually like sums of money. And what what Daniel is saying is the interpretation is to say, you have been weighed against something and you've been found wanting. You are not measuring up to the to the sum of money or to whatever it is you've been measured against. And because of that, your kingdom is divided and given up to the Medes and to the Persians. So what, what, what God is doing, God who controls history, this is the, the, the vision of, of God that Daniel is giving us, is he says, listen, you are, you are not fulfilling this, this role over all the, all the earth. This is kind of the, the role of Babylon, and because of that, I'm giving your kingdom away now to the Medes and to the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, and a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom, However, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede, remember the Medes and the Persians we just talked about, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, normally, we would, we would, we would have expounded the passage here, and we would jump to application. But um, we need to talk about a problem in the text, because there is, there is something that I, I think w- it, w- we would be wrong to not talk about this. Okay? So, um, a, we, we, when we look at other historical sources, we find that um, there is, we actually have no knowledge of any king in Babylon's history named Belshazzar. That doesn't show up for us when we look at other ancient histories. There is not a king named Belshazzar. And Nebuchadnezzar did not have a son named Belshazzar. Okay? In fact, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had three different sons, Amal Marduk, Neraglisser, Labashi Marduk. Apparently Marduk was a really popular baby name at one point. Um, But uh, and and each of these sons uh, take over Nebuchadnezzar's uh, throne, and they rule for a short time, for a few years. Some of them, for you know, in some cases, for just a few months, and then they would get killed by someone. It's basically a house of cards on steroids um, in ancient Babylon. But this is this is what happens after um, Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Alright, now what happens is all of this line gets cut off when a, a, a kind of a coup takes place in Babylon led by a guy named Nabonidus. Him and a, a party of people take over uh, Babylon and they, they end up ruling it uh, until they are taken over by the Persians. And Cyrus actually comes into Babylon and takes it over. And... Um, this is also a problem for our passage because it says that Darius is the one who takes over at the very end for Belshazzar. Now, um, uh, I'm wondering if you feel a little bit uncomfortable right now. I, actually, you should. I'm guessing you probably feel a little uncomfortable with the fact that like, what the Bible seems to be saying doesn't line up with history as we know it. There is, again, there is no king that we know within history named Belshazzar who was ever ruler over at Babylon. Okay. Maybe this is a threat to like, the truth of Scripture for you, the, the inerrancy of Scripture. This is certainly something many people struggle with in our time today. And I, I want us to sit in, a, sit in that a little bit before we move forward, just to kind of take note of it. Because in exile, right, us living in this, this other place, we are going to feel this pressure to have this kind of stuff really chip away at our faith. It's the kind of thing that might erode the foundation of our faith and cause us to, to wonder if what we're reading in the Bible is actually, is actually um, true, right? Now, um, this, for a long time, the view of Daniel by scholars was that it was just a bunch of made-up history, because again, it didn't line up with any other sources, until eventually some scholars uh, later on learned that Nabonidus actually had a son named Belshazzar, and, and for a time, he put his son in charge of Babylon. For a period of around 10 years, Nabonidus is, is, is not in the, the capital city of Babylon, he's out doing some other stuff, we don't need to get into to what he's doing, but what matters is that he's not there. All right, and so what, what scholars eventually found out is that his son, Belshazzar, actually was basically ruling as king of Babylon for a period of around 10 years. He was in the capital city, he was directing the affairs of everything, and so he was a king in all but name. And that's why we didn't ever see that he was listed as king ever. okay, So we had to do a little bit of work, but we find out actually what the Bible is saying to us when we reconstruct it is actually very accurate of what took place during that period. And we also know that while he was in charge of Babylon, Persia came in, and and from some several other sources we find that there was actually this, this nocturnal festival to the gods going on, and when Cyrus shows up and While that's taking place, um, they're actually able to kind of peacefully but sneakily come into the city and take over power and kill Belshazzar um, and take over control, basically of all Babylon during this this festival. Again, which we as we read this, we find out it actually lines up pretty well with the story of the Bible. Now, it we don't actually know why the why our story here tells us that Darius is the one that takes over when everything else we know from history says it's Cyrus, but. As we've kind of moved forward, we found that what as we dig deep, deeper in history, we find that the the history here actually lines up better than we realized at first. All right. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about about Darius and Cyrus next week. I don't want to dwell on that necessarily, but I I want us to kind of just pause and think about the fact that like. You, we were probably uncomfortable reading that, or you know when, when I first brought that to your attention that there is some discrepancy between what we 're reading in the Bible and what we're seeing in history and I the fact that it makes us uncomfortable I actually want us to pause and talk a little bit about that today because um, um, we actually see god's word show up in the in the story itself, so it makes sense to talk about god's Word um, with this with this problem in the text that we we potentially ran across all right so let's talk about that a little bit now. I think sometimes people want to use scripture like a hammer, all right, let, let me say what I, what I mean, like a blunt instrument that's really easy to use, you don't have to think that hard about it, and we can kind of, you know, use it, we take the fact that it, we believe it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's, it's authoritative, and we, we use that to just kind of hammer stuff in place, right? Now, wh- what, do you, what do you use a hammer for? You use it for responding to problems, Right? Right, if there's a problem, then I will bring out my hammer and I'll use it. Use it to break things down. Think like a sledgehammer in a wall. Right, we're gonna we're gonna tear this wall down, and you use it to generally kind of just persuade things that don't really want to go into a certain place to go in that place. Right, that's kind of how you use it. Hammers are not subtle tools. Right, they are. You don't have to think that hard about how to use a hammer. Um, You do whatever you want to do with a hammer. The hammer is not doing anything on its own. It's waiting to be picked up and and used to hammer something into place. And they're very reactive. They, They need something to hammer. So to a hammer, everything is a nail all right? and when we view scripture like a nail that or like a hammer that means that that to, to us using scripture in that way everything is just some problem to be solved and I can throw a Bible verse at it I can just use it I don't have to think about it that hard and the types of problems that we that often scripture gets used to to solve are like how do I be happy how do I get out of trouble um, uh, what, what should I do in this exact situation or maybe I just need um, to look up the answers you know to figure out exactly what to do and we don't think about how we're using scripture. And if that's how we view scripture, then then just like when a hammer is broken and you can't really use it, you got to get rid of the hammer, like it would be a problem if, if scripture claimed to be a text, a history textbook or a science textbook, and it didn't help helping that every time, right? Or it would be a problem if Scripture was saying it's a self-help book or a guide to making decisions in life, a roadmap to life to making every decision for you, and then it didn't work, right? You couldn't find an answer in Scripture or something you thought you found in Scripture when you were were just grabbing a verse out of there didn't actually work out the way that you thought um, or, or, like, how do I be successful in life? I'm hoping the Bible will just give me something easy that I can use and take away from that it, it would be problematic for us and cause us to doubt what's going on in Scripture when that doesn't actually play out for us, right? Now, I think many people, right, some of us may be in this room, for sure a lot of people outside this room, have expressed frustration when the Bible has failed to be some of those things. A self-help book, a history textbook, a science textbook, a, a, you know, a book of sayings that we can pull out for advice to live a good life, right? Right? You, we experience frustration in the Bible when it isn't one of those things, when we can't just use it like a hammer to fix whatever problem we have, right? Now, thankfully, Scripture itself does not talk about itself in that way, all right? One of the, there's a lot of places I could go here, but I want to talk about Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, okay? Instead of comparing itself to a hammer, um, Scripture here is compared to, or the Word of God is compared to uh, rain and snow, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I have sent it. All right. So, so scripture is actually like, like rain that has, is sent with a purpose to cause life to grow up. All right, and and it it, it accomplishes its goal. It might take a little while to do it, right, but it goes out with this purpose, just like God sends out rain and snow uh, to cause life to, to come. And so that means God's word is not reactive, it is itself a very active thing. And we don't have any control over it necessarily, right? It's gonna go and it's gonna do its thing and it's gonna achieve its purpose, whether or not we are trying to use it that way or not, right? It's not directionless, it has intent. Um, it doesn't need a nail to hammer because it, it has its own purpose in what it goes out to do, to do. It needs to seed the ground and nourish the roots and saturate the soil. The soil and it needs to be digested. It needs to, um, uh, to let it grow and to, blo- to blossom. And so, while, while Scripture is, is true and it's authoritative, right? The w- words like inerrant or infallible are used to describe Scripture a lot of times. Uh, and, and those are helpful words. But I think what, what Isaiah 55 is telling us is that Scripture is also faithful, to accomplish the purpose that it gets set out to do. And if that's true, we need to understand the purpose of Scripture instead of trying to use it for whatever we want, trying to give it some purpose whenever we open it up. We need to understand what the purpose of the Scripture has for itself, for God's Word, in order to understand it and to see it be used in the way that it's intended. All right? The faves of many people have been abandoned because they were told Scripture was a hammer, something they could pick up and use for whatever they wanted to do that they didn't have to think that hard about and they could just go to work hammering stuff with. And when they found out it wasn't, a lot of times the the, the pressure is to say, fine, I'm done with it. And so a lot of people will end up rejecting God's word because it, it, it didn't prove to be something that it never claimed to be in the first place. All right, we have to have this reminder for ourselves as we open up scripture. We need to appreciate its nuance. I think in the story that we just read of Belshazzar and Daniel, we actually have a bit of a picture of what I'm talking about here. It's a bit of an allegorical picture, but, but go with me here. All right, Belshazzar comes into contact with the word of God. It has a purpose. Right? It is sent for a reason to communicate something to Belshazzar, but he doesn't understand it, and it makes him afraid right? And so it's like um, he cannot understand it, and because he can't understand it, its purpose is not able to take the effect that it has, um, that that it was supposed to have when it was sent. And so and so, what needs to make it comprehensible for Belshazzar, so that he's not afraid, so that he doesn't just abandon, get, go back to partying, pretending the, the hand on the wall never showed up, is he needs a, a key to unlock it. Think of it like a door that is standing there, but he but Belshazzar cannot go through the door because he needs some sort of a key. And for many people who read scripture who don't understand it, who are offended by parts of it, who who are confused by it, it's like there's a door that's blocking the entrance. All right? So for, in order for us to to understand scripture, we have to understand its purpose, right? If we go back to Isaiah 55, we have to understand what the purpose is. And and so I want to talk about, as we kind of move into our time of application today, how do we go about determining what purpose Scripture has as we open up uh, different books of the Bible and read through them? What is its purpose, and how can we understand that better so that we do not have to be like Belshazzar, confused or, or having something blocking us from getting to what its intended goal is? Now, the first point of application is to wrestle with God when things don't make sense. right? Now, unfortunately, in the passage, I don't actually think Belshazzar really wants to wrestle that hard with what is in front of him, right? He he wants to, again— I think he's trying to bribe Daniel to just give him, give him a, a favorable interpretation. He doesn't wanna actually work that hard to understand it. He wants to be in control of what the interpretation ends up being. And he figures, I'll throw, you know, I'll throw this guy a bone, this, this loser exile from, from Israel, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll elevate him and he'll give me a good uh, interpretation of this, of this word and, and everything will be great. He wants it to be easy. He wants a hammer, right? And he wants to direct where that hammer is going. And we don't set ourselves up well, just like Nebuchadnezzar, or sorry, Belshazzar, when we cherry-pick verses, when we read it, um, read into it whatever we want to say, right? When we, we, we go into it um, having some purpose already in mind for the scripture and, and, and trying to apply that, right? Or not trying to you know, wrestle with it and to, to try to understand what it is saying on its own terms, um, we end up being like Belshazzar. Or sometimes if we go to it and we just don't want to do the work to figure out what the purpose is. And we because we're thinking it's something else, and then we end up um throwing its purpose. And if it doesn't make sense, a lot of times we just end up abandoning it or going somewhere else in scripture. All right? We gotta keep wrestling. All right? And sometimes we'll find answers in scripture, just like we did in the passage today, right? For like I said, for a long time, people didn't really know what to do with the fact that uh that uh what Daniel is saying doesn't necessarily line up that well with history, but As people kept studying and trying to understand it, that came out, and and the validity of what was going on was, was fortified. All right? Now, sometimes we will find good answers to things as we wrestle. We won't always, though, right? We, a lot of times we will go in, we'll have questions, and the questions will not get answered nice and neatly, right? We won't be able to just hammer that thing in place and get it, you know, get it all settled out, out perfectly. We will not always come to places where we feel ex- you know, exactly perfect and everything's tidied up in a nice bow for us. But that doesn't mean that the Bible's broken then. Right? The purpose of Scripture will remain in those situations because it serves a higher goal than just you know, making everything make sense to us. And so we've got to keep wrestling with God. Uh, Earlier, Lisa talked about uh, views and brews that we're we're going to be doing. We did this last fall or last spring. We're bringing it back up again this fall. Views and brews is where we just have a space where we get together and we talk about hard questions. Um, you know, whatever question you may have. Sometimes it's around scripture. Sometimes it's around um, God Himself, and we just get together and we talk about it. There is not necessarily any direction or goal for the group other than to create a space to talk about these things that we don't necessarily have good answers to always. Right? We can wrestle together about, um, about these questions we have with God. We're wrestling with God together to try to approach Scripture with a reverence right? that says that we're not always going to understand it because it's bigger than us, it's deeper than us, but it has a purpose, and we believe it has a purpose, so we're going to wrestle with God until we understand that's purpose. Now, if we, we, we continue in the story, right, Belshazzar is thwarted by this door, right? He needs a key to unlock it, and Daniel shows up with an interpretation, and he is the key in the story, right? The key to help Belshazzar understand the interpretation of the passage. Daniel shows up, he has the key. Now, in scripture, there is a master key for everything, right? In a building like this, You know, you might have a bunch of keys that open up, you know, different doors, but there's a few people that have like the master key. I would assume that unlocks like every single door in the building. You can get you can get in anywhere in this building if you have the master key. And Scripture's master key that unlocks everything is Jesus. And so we need to let Christ. Be the key to understanding Scripture. We need to constantly be reading Christ as the key or the answer to what we're reading in Scripture. To try to find him as the purpose of God in the text. Everything in Scripture will only make sense ultimately in the light of Jesus. Right? Even if you can reconcile the history of a passage that doesn't make sense, you will not actually understand the meaning of a passage until you read Jesus into it. In in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 20, Paul says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. He is the purpose of Scripture. Scripture is God's writing on the wall, right? Just like he's in this story. Scripture is God's writing on the wall that Jesus is the center of his purposes in the world. Okay, which means we need to learn how to see the revelation of Jesus. We need to understand him. We need to understand his incarnation, his ministry, his cross, the resurrection, the group of people he started, in order to, to make what, what reading in different passages in Scripture comprehensible to us. Right? This takes work, it takes community, it takes wrestling together, it takes practice, it takes wrestling, it takes patience. It, it takes going in sometimes and, and believing that we won't always find the perfect answer right away, but believing that there is some purpose to it, and we will find that as we gaze more and more on Jesus. This is, wh- this is why, I mean, if you've heard me or Julie preach enough here, you, you probably know like we're going to end every sermon by talking about Jesus. Have you noticed that? You guys are probably like, I know how this is going to end. All right, I'm going to pull my phone out at the very end there. I'm sure they're going to bring Jesus up, all right? By design, like, I'm a one-trick pony, right? I've I got one thing I do, you know? Um, and and that's, that's on purpose, right? There's a design to that. We want to tie everything that we do here as a church, not just in our sermons and everything that we do, back to the centripetal force of Jesus. Everything is driving in towards that center, right? And other things... Everything else is important, right? But it spins off of that that primary center to everything we do. The design, the purpose of what we do is is centered on Jesus, and so and so Jesus is the Word of God. This is John one says this. Hebrews says this as well. And He has God's authority as King. And if Scripture is is proclaiming this King, He's revealing this King to us, then it carries His His authority with it. As it, but only. In that it points to Jesus, right? So we again, this is why it's so important that we understand Jesus as the center of the Bible, because then it carries His authority. The Bible doesn't just carry authority because it's the good book, right? It only carries that authority as we center it on Jesus, the King, the one who has been given uh, authority of God. But when it does that, when it has that as its center, then Scripture will challenge us. It will. Um, it will. It will uh, read. Us, not just the other way around. Right? We won't just read Scripture; it will end up reading you, as you end up reading it, because of the of the of the of the uh, the center of Jesus, the King. The challenge that is offered in Scripture, it will end up reading you. Now, if we return to Isaiah eleven, right? There's a purpose to everything God does; it's supposed to bring uh, life out of it eventually. But, I mean, uh, we live in Minnesota, and. uh, we got here this morning earlier, but apparently it's snowing out right now, right? And we are being reminded again. It's just like, come on, can we get a few months without snow here? But like we're reminded, snow is inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It's not always fun, right? Same with rain. Like you know, rain can be refreshing at times, but eventually it just gets you. Just get sick of it, right? But it brings life up, right? You know, even though it's uncomfortable for that rain and snow to fall it will end up bringing life. It will bring that purpose that it's being sent down to, to do, like in, it says in Isaiah 11, but we have to put up with some discomfort sometimes. All right. Now, Scripture will challenge us as it reads us. Um, just like Belshazzar is uncomfortable by God's word, he, he, he's afraid that it's going to be a challenge to him. That's why he wants to control it so bad. Right? And it's not easily understood by him. He can't just take, you know, take his hammer out and understand what's going on. He needs to, 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 to posture himself to change his, uh, his receiving of it so that he's receiving it well. That's an uncomfortable thing inherently. And scripture is going to make us uncomfortable as we wrestle with it. That's just a part of reading scripture. And that is a good thing. All right? It's not a bad thing if we are uncomfortable reading it. Because then we know it's doing its job. Okay, just think about it. At the center of the Bible is a declaration that Jesus is king and you're not, right? It's a declaration that, that his way is the true way in the world and that we are supposed to repent of our sin and follow Him. That we are supposed to give up our pride and our rebellion towards God to worship Him. It, you know, to we need to be forgiven. We're not perfect, right? That's offensive, right? Some people don't like that. Hearing that, some people really don't like that about the b- message of the Bible. And what what it ends up doing is it offers grace to all the wrong people. Like we we like the fact that that grace is offered to us, right, and to people like us that we think aren't so bad, but we. There are lots of people that are uncomfortable with the fact that the Bible is offering grace to all the wrong people. All the people you don't like, right, that you think are inferior in some way, for whatever reason that is, whatever your bias is towards people, um, grace is offered to those people too. And that's offensive to you too, right? This is This is what is at the center of the Bible. So it's inherently an offensive thing and it can't be categorized, right? It, can't, it will not be your self-help book. It will not be, uh, tell you, you know, how to live your life perfectly and have all, find all the success, right? This is, not, this is not what the Bible is. And so you can't categorize it and that's gonna be frustrating to you. And, and you're gonna feel pressure to sideline it. You're gonna feel pressure to, to cherry pick verses or to, to dismiss it altogether, all right? And this is a good thing. This means scripture is working and it's bringing life out of us. And so the call for us is to to push towards that, to to find the master key in every single text and to try to understand how this is unlocking to us uh, the, the purpose of the text, whatever that is. And as it ends up reading us and exposing our hearts, it ends up revealing to us who we really are in the light of this king and his gospel and it proclaims Jesus to us and it proclaims Jesus to the world. And this like rain falling on us, this will bring us life. Okay, so, so that's my, my call and my challenge to all of you today, is, is, is read scripture for all it's worth and, and see life come from that. Um, we're going we're gonna to close now with a time of, of worship a time of communion and we invite everybody to come and take communion here. We just ask that you are a follower of Jesus. Please partake in, in communion with us if you're even if you're just visiting us today. Um, we're going to have uh, prayer in the back so if during that time of worship you would like to have prayer for anything at all, right? Even the smallest thing. Like, please let us pray for you. There will be someone in the back waiting to pray with you. Um, and then, also, one other response uh, alongside worship and communion and prayer is giving. And so we would just ask if, if you feel so led by the Spirit of God to, to give to, to the community here at Rest City. We actually have a box in the back. You can throw cash or check back there. We Even the smallest little bit, we are very thankful uh, to God for you for. So um, if you would all uh, uh, bow with me in prayer, we will enter into a time of response uh, in the form of, of worship through song. Father, we thank you that you have written on the wall for us so that we can understand your purpose in the world and that you have revealed to us that your purpose in the world is Jesus himself. God, thank you that that is not a hard thing, even though, even though sometimes uh, getting that door open can be tough, Lord. I pray that you would help us to, to have the strength and the endurance to wrestle in your word, to, to find uh, what is the purpose behind it. How does it tie us into Christ and his gospel? Because that is such a good and, and, and life-giving and wonderful thing, Lord. And we are refreshed by uh, that purpose every time we go back to your, your word, Lord. We are, we are renewed, we, we, are, we are made new, God. So please do not discourage, let us be discouraged from going to your word, Lord, but, but help us to, to be reminded that going to that will bring us life because it points us in the direction of your son, Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.